Hi, I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Batya Unger-Sargon. And this is another episode of Newsweek's The Debate. So this week, we are debating one of my personal favorite topics. That's the Second Amendment. That's your right to keep and bear arms. Or maybe it's not your right to keep and bear arms, actually. I guess we're going to find out. Definitely have some thoughts on this topic myself, as any quick Google search will indicate. We'll try to, we'll, we'll try to moderate a great discussion here. So who are we going to hear from, Badia? Well, if Josh lets them get a word in edgewise, we're going to hear from John E. Rosenthal and Colian Noir, and we are very excited about this debate, so stay tuned. But before we get to that, we wanted to tell you about our show's sponsor. The debate is sponsored by Herzog Wine Cellars. You can find them at HerzogWine.com. They sent us each a box of wine, and I got to say, I had the Pinot, and it was really good. How about you, Josh? Have you had any of the wine yet? Yeah, who knew the perks of podcasting? Uh, so, uh, I thought the Syrah was excellent myself. We got some reds, some whites, but... Yeah, we are great, very grateful to our new sponsor on this program, Herzog Wine. You can check them out at HerzogWine.com. So we're going to take it into a quick break here. And then on the other side, we will be right back for what we fully expect, I would say, is going to be a spirited discussion on the Second Amendment's right to keep and bear arms. Stay with us. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back to another episode of Newsweek's The Debate Podcast. So this week we are debating uh, personally one of my very favorite topics, and that is the Second Amendment. That's the... Your right to keep and bear arms. What does it mean? Is it problematic? Is it patriotic? What do we do about it? Do we do anything about it? So, Body, without further ado, why don't you tell us who we're going to hear from today? We are so thrilled to be joined by John E. Rosenthal, co-founder of Stop Handgun Violence, and Colia Noir, a gun rights activist, a lawyer, and the host of the web series Noir. John, Colian, welcome to the debate. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so thanks so much to both of you. So, um... Look, before we kind of get into some more nuts and bolts here, some uh, specifics and all that, let's kind of give you both just an opportunity to just kind of frame your overall approach to all this. Basically kind of just get out your, you know, 60 to 90 second elevator pitch, if you will, as to, as to why gun rights are good or bad. So, uh, Kalyung, let's start with you. Uh, well, for me, you know, I, I started off not being pro-gun or pro-Second Amendment, I was largely kind of apathetic, kind of leaning towards anti. Um, for me, as I got further into it, for me, it kind of was just a thing that I became a fascination from a uh, from a physics and just enthusiast, enthusiasm standpoint. Um, from there, I started getting into the more political aspects of it. And the more I learned, I started to realize that my ability to protect myself with a firearm um, to me is probably one of the most important aspects of things that I do in my life, largely because the most important thing I have is my life. Mm. And I can't depend on anyone else, not because no one wants to help me or will be willing to help me in the event that I need to, but it's just like, it's just is what it is sometimes. And so that ability to depend on myself, to protect myself and the people that I love to me is one of the most important things you could possibly have in this world. And John? Yeah, I too am uh, a gun owner. Um, and a business person, and I've been the lead advocate for gun violence prevention here in Massachusetts, 
And I did that starting uh, back in 1994 when I realized, you know, 19 kids under, uh, you know, 20 years old were dying every day, uh, 106 Americans dying every day um, from firearms. And um, that it was largely due to bad public policy leading to bad public health outcomes. And so I, I built a big billboard. Again, I'm a gun owner. I support the Second Amendment. Um, put, built the 250-foot billboard on the Massachusetts Turnpike near Fenway Park. Put up messages around gun safety. And since that point, uh, here in Massachusetts, urban Massachusetts, we've reduced gun deaths by the rate of gun deaths by 40%. We're an urban state with the lowest gun death rate in the nation, the lowest cost of gun violence, and um, we've done it without banning most guns. So I believe that there is a way to work within the Second Amendment and also save lives without infringing on law-abiding gun owners. So it sounds like actually there's a lot of agreement here. You both support the Second Amendment, believe it should exist. I'm sure, Kolyan, that you oppose gun violence. So let's try to drill down a little bit more into where exactly um, the disagreement lies. And John, I wonder if you, to do that, if you could tell us how you accomplished that feat. And then we can ask Kolyan if he agrees with the methods that you used. Sure. Um, so what we did is uh, simply look at the gun constituent groups. Um, and like with automobiles, um, put in place uh, laws and regulations that require accountability and responsibility on the part of gun owners, gun dealers, gun manufacturers, and law enforcement. So here in Massachusetts, uh, we have renewable gun licensing just like automobiles. Um, we require safe storage and safety training like automobiles. Uh, we became the first state in the nation uh, to require that gun manufacturers put minimum safety features into their guns like trigger locks and, uh, you know, magazine disconnects if the magazine is not uh, in the handle of the gun. Um, and basically, we regulate real guns like, you know, the National Consumer Product Safety Commission regulates toy guns, but prohibits the regulation of real guns. And then um, we, we created a, a opportunity like with automobiles where it's, it's discretionary licensing based on um, your history. Uh, and law enforcement uh, literally can, police officers who issue the licenses here in the state, like a car license, um, they, they have discretion um, if they know that, that you've had a history of violence, but say there hasn't been a restraining order taken out against you. Uh, and that led to red flag laws. Um, but all of this is to say the only thing we ban are military-style assault weapons and large-capacity ammunition magazines because law enforcement are given 13 to 17 rounds in their service weapons. Where's the logic in giving the general public 35 to 100-round magazines to outgun police without even an ID or a background check? So it's accountability and responsibility without banning most guns. We've proven that gun laws work without banning most guns. And if every state, we have the lowest gun death rate in the nation here in Massachusetts. If every state had the same 3.5 per 100,000 firearm fatality rate, 27,000 of the annual 40,000 gun deaths could be saved nationwide simply 
by having uniform national laws like we have proven to work in Massachusetts. So, Colian, a lot to respond to there. Uh, anything you disagree with? Um, yeah, so I can start off at the top. The, the main thing would be the, the whole notion of banning military-style assault weapons. Um, they're AR-15s. Um, a number of them are right here behind me. Um, those are military weapons. Um, they're semi-automatic. Um, what they ban are these weapons. But when you call them military-style assault weapons, generally speaking, they, they present this idea that we're talking about the same guns that the military is using. They're not. They, these are specifically civilian weapons designed to be owned by civilians. And not only that, they account for such a fraction of the gun violence in this country. The fact that there is such a specific focus on them, especially when they try to justify it by using by saying, well, this is the gun of choice by mass shooters. That's not the case either. The vast majority of mass shootings are actually committed with handguns. Hmm. So from that so, perspective, it begs the question. So go ahead. No, I, I just want to follow up with that. I mean, you're, you're, you're getting at this point, I think, already. But um, look, I, I, I'm a proud owner of a, a, a Daniel Defense 556. I own thousands of rounds of ammunition. Uh, less than two months ago, I visited the Warsaw Ghetto in Warsaw, Poland, went to Treblinka. I view that weapon as my last defense against a situation such as that. So, Colleen, why don't you kind of build that case out for me? Why don't you kind of go to like the full kind of like gun rights? Why don't you kind of just explain the broad stance as to why folks like you and I view these weapons as an actual bulwark against true government tyranny? So I, I think the funny thing about that, and that's the last point you state is really important because people overlook or gloss over the biggest aspect of why we have the Second Amendment in the first place. And, and the reason we have the Second Amendment is to keep our government in check. And a lot of people don't want to say that because it's like, oh my God, you want to talk about taking over the government? That's not what it's saying. It, we're talking about a country that was established by people who had to deal with a tyrannical government and they had to collectively come together with their own arms to fight that government. And so as a result of that, whenever they put together the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, they enshrined that ability within that Constitution so that going forward, in the event that we had to deal with a government, whether it be foreign or domestic, and the people needed to protect themselves and protect, protect, protect their property, protect their lives, protect their families, protect the country, they could do that readily so. You can't do that if the domestic government has control of all the guns and then say, well, yeah, you have a right to own a gun, but the, the, the domestic government is going to have control of all the guns. Therefore, you have to go and ask them for the guns to stop them from being tyrannical. That just doesn't make any sense. And so that's why that's why we defend the ability to own the AR-15 so vehemently, because back then when it was established, yes, the government, they had muskets and so did the people. They had muskets as well. And so you fast forward to today, our government doesn't have muskets. They have machine guns. And we're only we're not saying we're only asking, but we can barely hold on to our AR-15s as is. So from that perspective, it says, well, if it's if the Second Amendment was designed to keep the government in check. Why can't we have the arms necessary to do that? And John, I guess my my follow would be I, I find this whole kind of mini debate about so-called uh, military style assault weapons from my perspective, otherwise known as technically undefinable and cosmetically amorphous subset of uh, semi-automatic weapons that certain people think look particularly scary. I, I find this whole mini debate just completely intellectually dishonest because something as Colleen is saying, something like 95 plus percent of gun murders in this country are about are with handguns, right? So why are we why are we avoiding the actual discussion here? Why are we talking about something that's not handguns? We should should we just be debating whether to ban handguns or like strictly very 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 tightly regulate them at least? 
the Second Amendment says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And until 2008 with the Heller decision, the D.C. versus Heller decision, that meant you had the right to a militia, which is a National Guard. And every court, including the Supreme Court, decided that way until 2008 with the Heller decision. That's number one. In the Heller, in the Heller decision, in the Heller, let me hold on. Let me finish. I let you speak. I let you speak. Let me. Just one point. The only reason I'm pausing you is because sometimes what tends to happen is multiple point, multiple points get made and we don't break them down. I just want to address that aspect of it point for point, if if possible. If not, if you just want to get spit it out, that's fine. Let's let John finish and then we'll like we'll we'll give you the last word of the segment. So, Scalia wrote for the majority in 2008. You can't ban guns in the common use of the time of the founders. Those were single shot black powder. He also said, I am not talking about military style assault weapons like AR-15s. They were not protected. And the there is and you can look at his decision that he wrote for the five four for five four majority. So um, and I actually had this conversation with Justice Scalia before that decision at a dinner, and he absolutely thought it was rational to regulate military weapons and that they shouldn't be in the hands of civilians. You don't use them for hunting. In fact, I hunt, and when I hunt, I have to get a license, and when I hunt deer, I'm limited to five rounds, and when I hunt duck, I'm limited to three rounds to protect the duck and deer population. Why is it? Where's the logic that when you hunt humans, no limit? And by the way, and by the way, if you really think you're going to fight a tyrannical government who has nuclear weapons, tanks, B-52s, what is your AR-15 going to do for you? I can tell you one thing it's going to do which is there have been 374 mass shootings of four or more people this year alone. And without an AR-15 and a large capacity ammunition magazine, you're going to have a very hard time killing a lot of people quickly and outgunning police who only have 13 to 17 rounds. Don't you remember Las Vegas with AR-15s? 558 people shot in minutes. You're not going to do that with a handgun and a 10-round clip. You're going to do it with military-style assault weapons. They are made to outgun police, and you know we've heard he wants his AR-15 in order to outgun police that can't be trusted because there like, could be a renegade, renegade government. That's just a false choice and a ridiculous argument when you're going up against a sophisticated military. I find it ironic that you talk about how lethal the AR-15 is in one respect with respect to mass shootings and and outgunning police officers, but then in the same breath says it will do nothing to fight back against a tyrannical government. With nuclear weapons and airplanes? Correct. So you're saying that our government would nuke the American people? You're saying that you're going to open fire on the American military? 
No, of I'm just saying that the government has those weapons. Your but, AR-15 isn't going to do John, his anything. John, his argument is that if the government were to hypothetically go full tyrannical, they wouldn't go in carpet bombing cities. They would. It would be Gestapo-style door-to-door kind of uh, stripping of the weapons. But let's is that pick the country you think we live in, Josh? I mean, we, we literally live in a country that was founded and established on them literally fighting back. Well, I, per I personally don't think we live in a country where the government would consider carpet bombing whole cities as opposed to going door to door, to door confiscating weapons. But let's pick this up on the other side of a break. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. This is already off to a to a fiery pun, very much intended uh, start. Uh, this is uh, Newsweek's The Debate. We'll be right back on the other side. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back. This is The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. So our guests are John E. Rosenthal and Kolya Noir. We are discussing gun control, gun violence, mass shootings have come up. So let's start there. So Kolya, I'm interested whether and to what extent you think mass shootings should be part of this conversation at all. Like to what extent should we be addressing our gun laws to those events? Um. I think they should be part of the conversation because people are dying as a result of people using firearms to kill people. But if we're going to talk about it from a statistical standpoint, vast majority of deaths in this country by way of firearms are suicides. And I mean, an overwhelming number. We're talking 65 percent. And then after that, when we talk with respect to homicides, the vast majority of the homicides that take place in this country are happening in very specific targeted areas in this country that have the same socioeconomic problems. And then when we get to mass shootings, there's such, an, a, such a statistical anomaly compared to everything else with respect to gun violence. I have to beg the question, why are we overly focused on them? And I get it. There is a fear component there. The idea that you could be anywhere where, you, generally speaking, you don't expect to engage in that type of violence. But at the same time, the same reason why I carry a firearm. So if I have a certain um, fear of going to a movie theater because of a potential mass shooter, that's why I want the ability to carry a firearm when I go to a movie theater or any other place that I go to. Because you, every, every one of these individuals, every one of these, not everyone, but the vast majority of them, they've, they've attained their firearms legally with respect to mass shootings. So there is no law that you're gonna create that's gonna prevent that. It's, it's just not gonna happen. So from that standpoint, we need to go beyond the, the idea of legislation and deal with the problem in the moment. I, I want to pick up on that, Colian and John. The the points Colian makes are really important. You know, of, of the of the annual gun deaths in the U.S., two thirds are suicides. One in five are young men, fifteen to thirty four, killed in homicides. A half of them are black. You know, a lot of women are killed in domestic violence situations. And it seems to me that so if that is the vast majority of gun deaths in America, and each of those sort of requires its own attention, its own focus, its own kind of a law. How do you respond to something like that? I mean, AR-15s are not really being used in, in, in any of those situations, which account for the majority of the violence. There have been 374 mass shootings more than days of the year this year, and that's of four or more people. Um, it's, it's, um, we've made it so easy um, with large capacity ammunition magazines 
uh, that are, again, greater than police carry. Um, you know, people die and police die uh, when, when uh, they have to reload. And to provide these large capacity ammunition magazines and military style weapons to the general public without a background check, including handguns, without background checks, okay. handguns will amount to 90% of the gun violence today. Now, here in Massachusetts, where we ban these military style assault weapons, we ban the large capacity ammunition magazines and we require criminal background checks for every gun sale. Um, we have had less gun violence. And in fact, every state that has criminal background check requirements for all gun sales have lower gun death rates than every single state with lax gun laws. So how you address it, and by the way, we have reduced suicides because we've made it harder for people to get guns who have a history of mental health problems. And after every mass shooting, what we hear, it's not the gun, it's mental illness. We have more gun violence in America than the 26 industrialized nations combined. And the big difference is easy access to firearms without ID or background checks at, in 32 states and at thousands of gun shows. Every country has mentally ill people. We happen to arm them undetected with high-powered weapons. That's why we have an epidemic of gun violence. I don't want to ban guns in this country. I just want to require accountability and responsibility. And how do you know if somebody's a criminal or how do you know if they have a mental health record unless you do a background check? I, I really need to hop in here. So um, we talked about the Heller case earlier. Um, I happen to be a constitutional attorney by training. I literally own a... Colt single action army revolver that I got engraved Scalia on the grip to name after him because he wrote the Heller decision. I've read that decision probably dozens of times. Um, I think the narrative that was presented earlier that the in common use phraseology in the majority opinion only refers to single shot muskets is just straight up wrong. That's just not how originalist constitutional theory works. Um, and in fact, that's why any number of lower courts across the country have used that exact majority opinion to say that because uh, so-called assault weapons that are actually in common use cannot be banned. Obviously, they can be regulated to certain extents. But specifically taking this, because we can't seem to get off of the so-called assault weapons topic, I have a very simple question for you, John. Can you define what an assault weapon is? Yeah. Uh, an assault weapon like the AR-15 uh, that was used in Sandy Hook, um, where my friends had to identify their children by their clothing because after getting three to 11 rounds each with a 223 round made them indistinguishable. Now that is not a weapon you use for hunting and it is for killing people. It is designed for that round. It is designed to stop an infantry. It is designed to tumble, not penetrate your body. I would say that is a military style weapon. And call you on what you could go ahead. Colleen. There was a lot of fallacy in a lot of that. Actually, 22 round is is actually used quite often. Hunt. I've, I've hunted many a times with with a 223. Yes. Yes, I did. That's that. It's what I used to hunt. It, you mean, and you eat that, that meat after it's received a 223 round. Yeah, why wouldn't I? Well, the way it's destroyed. Like human tissue is destroyed with a 223 round. All, all, all rounds of ammo destroy human tissue. 
that's that's what it's designed to do. It's designed to do that ex explicitly. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a little confused. And so you're advocating using 223 rounds? People do it all the time. Uh, 223, 556. For, for stopping humans, do you advocate for that too? I use nine millimeter as a self-defense round that I carry to protect myself if another human tries to kill me. And sometimes- Do you think it's fine for people to have without an ID or background check and to I've had use in mass shootings? I've had a background check for all of these guns here, vast majority. Right. I don't know where this notion that- So you support background checks. Is that what you're saying? You support yeah, background, background checks back, for, I don't, for I, everybody? I don't support universal background checks. So Colleen, walk us through that argument. Talk talk to us about, you know, the whole gun loophole, quote unquote, how you see that. And then I would also like you to address another point John has brought up a few times. I want to understand your position. Is your position that um, there are problems with some of these laws and, and thus we have to accept that even though some of these laws would prevent gun violence, we can't implement them because they are unconstitutional? Or is your position that actually they don't prevent violence in the way that John is proposing? So talk to us about those issues. Largely, whenever we had this conversation about background checks, it's always propped, propped up as we don't have background checks. We do have background checks in this country. If you go and you buy a gun from a gun dealer, whether it be at a gun show or at a gun store, you're required to get a background check. That's by law. However, in a lot of states, in many states, vast majority of states, you can sell a gun privately. I can, in Texas right now, if I had a friend, if I'm, if I'm aware that he is not a felon and he's not prohibited from owning a firearm, I can sell my personal gun, like I can sell all of my other personal items to him without a background check. I don't have to require him to get a background check. What the universal background check seeks to do is to require me if I wanted to sell a gun to my friend or a family member, like for instance, I gave my I gave a gun to my mom of sort, uh, gave a gun to my mom years ago, it would require that they would first have to go get a background check before I could sell them that gun. And so the idea is that by doing this, we would be able to prevent criminals from buying guns privately and then utilizing them in crimes. My argument is, how do you enforce such a system? It is inherently going to be on an honor system unless you have a national database mm -hmm. with every single gun that records every single transaction. Mm -hmm. That would be a national registry, which we do not have. I am against a national registry mm -hmm. because by and large, they do not stop crime. So even if you had a criminal who went out, bought a gun, even got a background check for that gun, and let's say the gun's registered. If he's going to commit a crime with the gun, he's going to still commit the crime with the gun. The registry does not prevent him from doing that. However, what it does do is give a database to the government, informing them of exactly all the guns that I have, where they are. And so if in the event further down the line that they decide that they do want to ban guns completely and confiscate them, they don't have to go door to door. They can just threaten me with sending me to jail. Hey, call me on the war. You have these five guns according to our national registry. We have a mandatory buyback, which has been proposed by a number of our politicians and, and currently our president. We have a mandatory buyback. You have to sell back your gun at a fraction of the price. And if you don't, you go to jail. And guess what? We'll know if you don't because we have them here on this registry. They don't even have to come to my house except for when they come to arrest me for not doing that. And so then I want to touch on something that uh, John pointed out with respect to magazine capacity. He talks about the idea that lives are saved whenever somebody's forced to reload. Okay, now what happens then if we have a magazine limitation capacity of 10 rounds and then we have another mass shooting? 
we'll be sitting here again having the same conversation. You'll be saying, why does anybody need 10 rounds? We need five rounds. And then we'll do that. And then later on down the line, there'll be another mass shooting. And then you'll say, well, why does anybody need five rounds? We need to, we need to limit it to three rounds. And we'll be having that conversation up until the point where I no longer have the ability to put any rounds in my firearm. So, I, Colleen, I just want to put, I, I, it's so interesting. I do want to uh, make sure you get a chance to answer this point John has made, though, which, which is that, are you arguing that these laws, for example, a registry, mm-hmm. are you arguing that, well, maybe it would save lives, but at what cost, at the cost of our civil liberties? Or are you arguing that it actually wouldn't save lives at all and that a lot of these sort of laws actually don't work to prevent gun violence in the way John has suggested? Both, actually. I, I don't think a gun registry would do anything to mitigate any of these crimes because, like I said before, vast majority of these are suicides. And then the remaining are gang and drug violence that happens in our inner cities in very specific areas. These kids are getting these guns illegally. Mm-hmm. Gun registration is going to do anything mm-hmm. to stop that. Not to mention red flag laws are inherently unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. John, a lot for you to respond to here. Uh, where do you want me to start? Where is the logic now? If you're a criminal and you can't pass a background check, you don't have to go to a federally licensed dealer who's the only one that has to run a background check. So private dealers can operate selling guns without background checks to anyone cash and carry with no ID. Now, every single state you know, that has a background check requirement makes it a little harder for, law by, for, for uh, criminals to get guns has lower crime rates, lower gun death rates, lower suicide rates because we just make it a little harder. So wait, but John, um, can I can I just push back? You, John, can yeah. I just push back on that a minute? How do you know if it's like correlation or causation, right? Like, you know, when you take an inner city where there are so many problems contributing to gun violence, right? And you compare that to, you know, rural Massachusetts, right? I mean, I mean, there, how, how can you tell that it's causation and not that there's another, you know, that this is a correlation? Because we're looking at gun-related injuries and deaths. So it, it's not that difficult to compare states. The National Center for Disease Control and Prevention does an annual report every year of firearm fatality rates. For every state and every so Massachusetts happens to have the lowest gun death rate. We're an urban state, by the way. We're not a rural state. We're an urban state. Uh, And we happen to be next to Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont that don't have background checks for private gun sales. But Massachusetts has has, and New York and New Jersey and states that are urban states but have effective gun laws have lower gun death rates than Texas, Wyoming, you name it, you name the rural states. And, you know, we're all experiencing, you know, mental illness in our states, but we just make it a little harder in these states that have gun laws and you have less suicides too. So, um, you know, it just makes no sense to have this bifurcated system. If you can pass a background check, you go to a federally licensed gun dealer. If you can't pass a background check, no problem. Go to one of 32 states and private dealers. Now, I don't buy, you know, this argument that it's, you know, it's just to protect family and friend sales. That's not the problem. The problem is that, you know, domestic terrorists and even international terrorists come to states and to U.S. gun shows where there are no background check requirements, buy their weapons, 
and then bring them to states where and countries where it's harder to get guns. So if we want to reduce injuries and deaths from guns, it's it's a simple thing to have background checks for all gun sales through your local police department. How would you enforce it without a national registry? Unless you're saying here, we would need a national registry in order to enforce it effectively, because otherwise you just so, be creating a law that is literally ineffective. No, I mean, background check laws are very effective and you have it. You have it all go through the FBI National Instant Check System and they look at 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 histories, criminal histories. You know, you're prohibited from buying a gun if you have a felony. You're 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 prohibited from buying a gun if you have restraining order. Okay, so let's say that let's stuff say is in the system. That so is in the system. So law enforcement knows. Let, let's say I'm a felon and I have a firearm. Right. Let's say I get arrested and, and, and I have a fire. Sorry, not a felon. Let's just say, yeah, let's just say I'm a felon and I have a firearm and a cop walks up to me. He's like, hey, did you get a background check for that gun? And I say, yeah, I did. How would he know? What system does a cop have to check it against to say, you know what? You didn't get a background check because this particular gun was sold to this person on this date mm -hmm. and it hasn't moved since. So that means that you either stole that gun or you didn't get a background check and they sold it to you. How would you enforce that without a national registry? All right. So, John, respond to that, and then it's going to take it into another quick break here. Look, there are records. I mean, we are a country of people and laws. And if you don't like laws and you want to try to outgun police, you know, go to Texas. No, 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 no. Don't, don't do that. Don't there do that. is a way. There is clearly a way that law enforcement, because if you have a felony conviction, they know. What I'm not going to let you do is paint the picture that I'm sitting here on this podcast saying that I want to go and shoot government officials with my firearms. Yeah, as a former Texan myself, I take personal umbrage of that, to be honest disingenuous don't do that that's 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 intellectually dishonest and disingenuous don't you do said a renegade government right i never even said the word renegade i said a possible tyrannical government like it was spelled out in our constitution it was it was designed to protect against possible tyrannical governments foreign or domestic i've never talked about going out on a, on a, uh, on an offensive to shoot government officials to take over the government. You said if they have military weapons, you need military weapons. I do. Wasn't that if, what the Constitution says? Exactly what it was intended for. <laughs> no, it's not what the Constitution says. Uh, right, we'll be right back on the other side. This is Newsweek's The Debate. We'll be right back on the other side for this very, very spirited Second Amendment discussion. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs. A gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back to Newsweek's The Debate. This week we are debating uh, in fairly explosive form, I might add, uh, the, the Second Amendment, gun rights, gun control, all of that juicy stuff. Um, so, John, let's start with you. I, here's, my, here's my question. Um, I think the kind of gun rights versus kind of stricter gun control or straight up just no gun 
debate makes a lot of sense in kind of an academic setting. It makes a lot of sense as kind of like an intellectual matter. We can talk about kind of philosophy and first principles and all of that. The reality is that when the American Constitution was written over 200 years ago, they made a deliberate decision. Um, and for better or for worse, again, uh, holding aside kind of this abstract uh, classroom philosophizing, for better or for worse, in the year 2021 in America, there are more weapons in circulation than human beings. So given that that choice was made a long time ago, working with what we have, what exactly is the argument working within the confines of the Second Amendment? You, you call yourself a Second Amendment supporter. You're not supporting an Australia-style door-to-door gun buyback system, I understand. So what exactly is the argument then for not kind of arming people like Kalyan and I who carry our handguns concealed in movie theaters to protect ourselves from shooters? What exactly is the argument, given that there are more guns in circulation than human beings in this country, for further restricting law-abiding gun rights owners? If you have inherently dangerous products like a firearm, there needs to be accountability and responsibility on the part of gun owners, gun dealers, gun manufacturers, and law enforcement to enforce laws. I support the Second Amendment. I have a firearm. Um, we happen to, I live in a, in a may versus shall issue state with concealed carry. Um, there are some standards um, for concealed carry in Massachusetts that don't exist in other states. Um, but I support the right to keep and bear arms. I just don't support it for people that can't pass a background check or who are <laughs> terrorists. So their only way to know if, if they're prohibited is to have a universal background check in every state, like you have a universal driver's license in every state. So I just think accountability and responsibility. Yes, there are a lot of guns around. We also know that a lot of folks that, that perpetrate crimes with guns, like the new most powerful high-powered weapons, um, at least we should know that, they're, that they can pass a background check and don't have a history of violence before they buy a very, and use, a very powerful weapon. Here's why I don't believe you when you say you support the Second Amendment. Because you talk about this idea and this notion that we just want background checks so that we can keep people responsible and keep them out of hands of criminals. But yet, you are in favor of banning one of the most popular semi-automatic rifles owned by civilians in this country. I, I just don't, I, you can't say you don't want to ban guns, but then say you're okay with banning the most popular rifle in the country. That just, that, that's well, intellectually inconsistent. Well, and, I, I and, don't and, agree. And, and, I don't agree because that's not a weapon that law enforcement enforcement carries and if you want to create an arms race no they their service weapons are service handguns with 13 to 17 rounds. i'm not swap team for being like they, specific they here they okay. are, what's that well i i mean your standard cop you see on the street in like boston or new york city is obviously going to be carrying a nine millimeter or something like that but i mean like swat teams and like tons of like federal and local law enforcement carry rifles of course they do for swat for they major SWAT events <laughs> You think it? You, you know. You take, think it, that's not a major event to me. When I go to a baseball game or a football game, I, 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 or any kind of high-profile sporting event, concert, anything like that, I more often than not see some people in uniform carrying rifles. But um, that's just that's just, I, 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 I don't want to disrupt what's going on here. Call you on. Also, you mentioned something about the the idea of, of of treating the firearms the same way that we treat cars with respect to having national driver's license. Would you be okay with a national reciprocity where my license to carry a firearm would let me to carry would allow me to carry my 
my firearm in every state that I go to? No, I wouldn't. They're the intellectual. Because we have with respect to this conversation. It's all it's it's all nonsense. It really is. You can't say in one breath you support the Second Amendment, but then tell me that I can't protect my life in New York the same way that I can in Texas. Is my life so no, less? No, no. If, if you need to comply with the, the, the laws of the state that you're in. So you don't believe in then treating firearms the same way we treat cars with respect to having universal license. No, look, you in Texas, you have a, I don't know, it's probably a 12, 15 per 100,000 firearm fatality rate. I happen to live in a state with a 3.5 firearm fatality rate. I would rather have the laws of Massachusetts apply to the whole country than to have virtually no gun laws like you have in Texas. Now, do the same thing with vehicle fatalities. Compare one state that has a higher vehicle fatality death to another that has a lower one. And then you tell me that you're okay still with having- And by the way, that, that changing the design of cars and having regulations on car manufacturers have reduced gun, uh, car death rates 10, 20 fold. So car you know, design, licensing, renewable licensing, safety training, all the things that are required for cars have dramatically reduced injuries and deaths while by deregulating firearms have dramatically increased gun-related injuries and deaths. I'm a car guy of the highest order and I, I love all of the safety standards that are in place that allow my car to be more safe. Now, if you, with all due respect, please answer my question. Are you still okay with the idea of having a universal driver's license in, even though there's one state that has a higher vehicle fatality rate than another state, the same way that you just absolutely uh, yes. Right. If, so if every state were required to have a license for a firearm, and there was a background check before you got the license, and there was safety training before you got the license, and you were held accountable for storing your gun if it's not in your direct control, yeah, I would like to see that nationally. And now as we talk about where there may be common ground, I think we need uniform national laws, starting with a background check and a licensing requirement through your local law enforcement. I just want to make sure I understood you clearly. So you do agree with having a universal license that would allow me to carry a firearm. Basically, my license in Texas would allow me to carry a firearm in any state that I go to. If the standards were the same across the country, that's yes, that's I would. That's that's that. Okay, fair enough. All right, Kolyan, I want to ask you a question. Um, I, I saw you on Bill Maher, and you made a really important point that I think does not get brought up enough in this context, which was that it's very easy to live in a very safe neighborhood and to be calling for gun control. Um, you know, but it's it's a lot harder when you live in a neighborhood where there is a lot of violence um, to think, well, I don't need some way to protect myself. And I've heard you sort of bring this up in, in different contexts as well uh, throughout this conversation. Talk us through that conversation, like the socioeconomic question here that may not be playing out in the way that people tend to think about it. Yeah, I, I, I have a plethora of friends from different backgrounds and different aspects of life. And so where I currently live now in Dallas, for instance, it's generally safe for the most part. Um, there are some, I live downtown, so there's that kind of weird spillover effect that tends to happen sometimes by surrounding communities. But in other places in, uh, of the world and in, in this country, you have people living in situations like where gun violence and violence in general and crime is a daily occurrence and they have to make a living. So they still have to go out into the world and exist and, and subject themselves to possibly becoming victims of these things. And the, the, 
background checks and and gun registration none of that's going to stop these criminals from doing that mm -hmm. I, i'd even i'd even say it would be more dangerous if you banned all of the guns because now what you start what you see start what you, what you see start happening is a disparity of force because now there is no concern or fear from these from these criminals that the victims that they may encounter may have something that equalizes the two of them to protect them and so this idea and this notion that no one needs these things for protection in a, in a country that is diverse from an economic, from a racial and a living, stand, living standard standpoint, I, I, think, I, I think it's kind of naive, honestly. If not, I'm not going to be so nefarious, as, I'm going to go so far as to say that it's disingenuous, but I could make that argument too. Because, because, because otherwise, what, what are you saying to the people who live in these places that are dangerous? You're telling them, well, I live in a place that's safe. So either make more money and move to a place that's safe or deal with the consequences of living in a bad neighborhood. John, do you want to respond? Sure. I mean, I'm not interested in banning guns. Yes, and you are. Everyone you should have a banning AR-15s. <laughs> right, because that's a military-style weapon. No, it's not. Uh, which it's literally the well, well, let me just let me just finish. I let you finish. I mean, I happen. To, I agree with you that you know. There ought to be equal rights for gun ownership in this country. There just needs to be uniform rights. I mean, here in this country, you know, we prohibit the National Consumer Product Safety Commission from regulating real guns, but they have to regulate toy guns and teddy bears. That's insane. So let's have uniform laws across the country so that everyone gets to play by the rules and not allow people who can't pass background checks to skirt the rules by not having a background check requirement. Now, if you want to get into the type of weapons, we can have those conversations, whether they're separate licenses for separate kinds of weapons. But right now, federal gun policy is to have unrestricted access to easily concealed handguns and military-style weapons and large-capacity ammunition magazines, cash and carry without any knowledge whatsoever of anybody's background or intent or history in 32 states. And that is why we have an epidemic of gun violence. I think if we had uniform gun laws, we would have less gun injuries and deaths, and we would not infringe on the Second Amendment as described by Scalia in the, in the, in the decision um, in 2008. I mean, I know, I know Dick Heller. Dick Heller actually said to me in a debate situation, you know, I, I actually think that maybe I'm partly responsible for what happened at Sandy Hook. I don't need an AR-15. I have one, he says. I don't need an AR-15, and, and nor, you know, do the general public. Yes. The and it just public. makes it easier to kill a lot of people not, quickly without reloading. It's not your position to tell people how to defend the most important thing that they have, which is their lives. I'm sorry, especially when your retort are laws that are literally. So you should you have a tank? Are you are are you should you be tank. able to buy a tank? You can't own a tank in America. So you right. should you think the public should have tanks? You can own tanks in America. So that's okay to have tanks. I don't have a problem with it. Do you I, think I, it's a good idea to give anybody the right to have a tank and blow right, up we're cities? The, we're, in, we're in the closing. Yeah, we're, we're in the closing minutes here, guys. Let's not get too bogged down in the tank discussion. But think about that. He thinks it's okay to have a tank. All right, okay all right, all right. We we, we got we, we have to bring this amazing debate to a close. But I we want to end on common ground. So I wonder if you could each take a minute and think of something that you are one hundred percent sure that the other guy agrees about. 
Um, let's start with you, John. What is something that you are totally sure that you that Colian agrees with you about and that we can take that out of this debate? I think, I hope anyway, that he agrees that it would be smart and good public policy to require everyone to have a background check so you know they are not a felon when they are purchasing. Okay, I'm sorry, firearm. that doesn't count because he already said he doesn't support that. I want you to say something that you're so sure he agrees with you about. So he felons being able to buy guns John, undetected? I want no, you to think of something that he agrees with you about. Can you, can you, can you, can you say, I I can't think of one. You don't, you can't, you can't can't commit to the position that Colian is against mass shootings. You can't commit to that. You can't say I am a hundred percent sure that he doesn't want people to die. Uh, I am sure he doesn't want people to die. Amazing. Thank you. Colian, tell us something that that you're totally. is insane to me. (laughs) Like, Like I'm literally on here talking as an individual who's protect, who wants to protect the right in order so that people can defend their lives. I don't want guns so that people can just go kill people randomly. I think that's insane. But I will say this. The one thing I will agree with you on is we do need to do what we need to do as far as finding out ways to solve the issue with respect to violence in this country. I don't want people dying. I don't want people being killed in mass shootings. I don't want I don't want kids in the inner cities that look just like me shooting each other up. I don't want any of that. I also don't want people who as a result of knee jerk reactions with respect to policy being stripped of their ability to protect themselves from said criminals. I, 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 we, I completely agree with you wholeheartedly with respect to that. Thank we you just both. agree in terms of how we go about doing it. And that, and that note of concurrence and uh-huh. agreement and, uh, and rare harmony, I might even add. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, both so much for joining us on Newsweek's The Debate for this particularly spirited discussion. I know I speak for Badia when I say that we are both very grateful. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Well, Badia, that was something. That was definitely our most spirited debate yet, Josh. <laughs> what were your thoughts? Talk, talk to me about it. Um, I felt like they were really evenly matched, really well informed. Um, it got really heated at times. There was a little bit too much ad hominem, I think, but at the, I was really happy at the end to see that we forced them <laughs> to find common cause, which of course is, we, we care about that a lot here. What did you think? Yeah, I thought we got off to kind of maybe, I mean, I want to say it was a slow start. You know, John was obviously dominating the discussion in the beginning and it took, it took a little while, I thought, for calling on to kind of get in, into the swing of things. But by the time we ended, they, look, I mean, they were kind of like self-monitoring for a while there, honestly. They were having like a really nice uh, back and forth there. Um, there were a couple things I would have liked to get in the weeds a little bit more on. I think like the concealed carry debate would have been, for instance, kind of a good thing to mm-hmm. kind of drill drill down on there um but um look i, I agree with you i mean I, I if we can't all find common ground on preventing mass shootings on preventing the slaying of innocent human beings then for goodness sake uh, what what can we possibly find common ground upon i suppose amen josh this has been the debate a newsweek podcast thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next week take care everyone